Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. Tonight, we're going to be finishing up our study of Created to Draw Near. We'll be looking at the last chapter and then the conclusion, the epilogue. And I hope it's a blessing to you. Let's go before the Lord and pray and ask his blessings on our study tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for how gracious and merciful you are to us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to come and gather together as your people tonight. Father, I pray that this time that we have might be an encouragement to us. Lord, I thank you that we have these times in the middle of the week to come and fellowship together and to pray together. Uh, Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to learn tonight from uh, your word, the truths that we have uh, to look at tonight. And Father, I pray that your name would be exalted, that you would be glorified. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at chapter 38 and then the conclusion to our study of Created to Draw Near. And tonight, there's going to be a lot of quotes tonight. A lot of times I'll try to break it down by an outline and give kind of the structure, but there were just a lot of good quotes in the chapters tonight. And he starts off chapter 38 by saying this, Jesus Christ continues in his priestly ways. Your high priest prays to the Father for you, and he is joined by the Spirit who also intercedes for you right now. I don't know how often we think about that, that at every moment of our lives as believers in Christ, we have a double intercession before the Father. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. He is at the right hand of the Father, isn't he? He is there ever living to intercede for us. But Paul says in Romans 8 that we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit, who he says there uh, prays for us, intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered when we don't know what we ought to pray, when we don't know how to pray in line with God's will. We're not even sure what to ask. He says the Holy Spirit prays for us. He intercedes for us. And so we have a constant, abiding, eternal double advocacy before the Father in the Son and the Spirit, bringing our concerns, our needs uh, before the Father's throne. If that's not encouraging, then I don't know what is. That we have the Almighty, eternal Son of God and the Almighty Spirit interceding for us and pleading for us and for our concerns. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 the writer of Hebrews describes the high priesthood of Jesus, and he says that Jesus lives forever. And because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. And in this portion of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting between the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of those that went in the line of Aaron. The normal priesthood of Israel in the line of Aaron, they would die. And then a successor would come and be the priest for a while. But Jesus' priesthood, he says, is an enduring one. It's eternal. When he finished his mission, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so the priesthood of Jesus is an abiding one. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 25 here, because he says, because Jesus always lives to intercede, he is able to completely save those who come to God through him. 
So there is no worry, there's no failure, no, um, no doubt about the Lord Jesus Christ's ability to save, to finish the job that he started when the Father gave him that mission in eternity past. We will be saved because Jesus intercedes for us. He says, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and then he prays for you. He prays that you would be united with both God and each other in love. And here he's talking about the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. This is the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in all of scripture. And it is on the eve of his death. It is very near his time to go to the cross. And he is praying to the father and he's saying, father, glorify yourself. And in, in this prayer, he prays for his disciples, the 12 that he has gathered. He prays for those that have been following him during his life and his ministry on earth. But then he also extends that prayer and he says, Father, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will come to you through them, through their word, through their testimony. And so Jesus' prayer there on the eve of his death prays for all of his disciples, both current and future. And he lifts them up before the Father's throne. And one of the things that is a, a, an overriding theme of that prayer is the theme of unity, that, that we would be one with God and that we would be one with each other in harmony as the body of Christ. And so we read in John 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. That is just for the disciples who were there during his life. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so he, he kind of links together the unity of the Trinity, the unity that each believer in Christ has with the triune God by grace through faith, and then also the unity that they will share with each other as a part of the body of Christ. And he says, Lord, may the world know through this unity that they share with me and with one another. May they know that you have sent me. God's love gathers you into himself. God is one. You are called to live in him and participate in his love. And then you are sent out to express this in daily life through your unity with others. And so we have been blessed by the love of God. We are drawn into a relationship, a fellowship with God through that love. And then having been loved, we then are called to love others, to extend God's grace and mercy to the world. He says, you believe in Jesus, which means that you have life. Now remain in him by imitating and obeying his love, which takes a lower place and serves. In this way, love is reproduced and expands even more. And so we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, kind of like what Paul prays in Philippians 2, when he says, let this mindset, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
Jesus humbled himself, didn't he? He was in full equality with God, very nature God, but he willingly humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. He came and he served us and gave himself to the death of the cross. And now we are called as priests of the Most High God to be God's representatives to the world, to, as, as the priests of the Old Testament interceded between God and the people, now we too are called to be priests and to intercede before the world and to draw people to Christ through the love of God. He says in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And what's amazing is that in verse 22, he says, I have given them glory. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And if you had a chance to read the chapter, what he does in reflecting on John 17, verse 22, is he kind of brings us back through the study, going back to the Old Testament and reminding us of different places where the glory of God came into focus in relationship to God dwelling with his people. And so we have, for example, uh, Moses longing to see God and God shows him a portion of his glory. We see in the tabernacle that, that once this tent of meeting had been finished, according to God's design, God's glory, his presence comes to rest in that tabernacle and then later in the temple. Uh, we see with Jesus that the glory of God is here among us. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Uh, John writes in John chapter 1, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is probably a reference to the disciples seeing the glory of Christ before their very eyes transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration. And so it's amazing then that Jesus would say in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? That, that this glory of God that came, that, that made Moses' face shine so brightly when he came down the mountain, this glory of God that was so visible and came to rest in the tabernacle, uh, the glory of Jesus that was transfigured in front of the disciples. Jesus says, I've given them glory. And there are probably several ways to take this. One is Jesus revealed the glory of God to them. And so when he says, I have given them glory, it could be in the sense of I'm revealing glory to them, the glory that you gave me. But I think maybe even beyond that is uh, the glory that is not so much the brilliant light of God's manifest glory, but the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, the glory of grace. All of these things Jesus has given to them, hasn't he? He's given them the truth. He's given them the good news of the kingdom. He's given them salvation by grace through faith. He's entrusted them with a glorious message and a glorious mission. So he says, I've given them glory. And he just reflects on that in the chapter and reminds us that that is priestly language, that the glory of God has been 
given to us that we might commune with God. And he says, glory is holiness on full display. It is big. It is stunning. You cannot look away from it. And then he says a couple sentences later, one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Spirit. And as a result, one with each other. He says, this is glory. This unity that we've been drawn into, union with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also the unity that God is creating within his people. That's a glorious thing, he says. That is glory. Your purpose, and here he's talking to us, our purpose, you and mine, our purpose is to be near to God, to live with him in his house and to experience his divine hospitality. If I were to say, what is a summary of this whole book? I would say that's a pretty good statement of what he's been talking about through this whole book, that the reason God made us and saved us is to be near him, to be with him, to be in fellowship, in relationship with him. And he says to live with him in his house and to experience his divine hospitality, which is really just another way of saying his grace, isn't it? His grace, his love, his divine hospitality. God has drawn us near. He's welcomed us in and he wants us to be near one of the overriding themes through the Bible, and that's his whole purpose in this book, is to show us that God's purpose from the very beginning to the very last page of Revelation has always been to be near his people and for them to be near him and for them to dwell together in eternity in peace and love and holiness. He says that's our purpose. John 17, 24. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So one of the very last things that Jesus prays for, for his disciples on earth is, Father, I want them to be with me. I want them to be near me, with me where I am and to see my eternal glory. He says, this has practical ramifications, practical applications. He says, if we ask people to pray for us, then he says, we need to keep our eyes open. He says, our, our high priest prays for us, doesn't he? We, that's the theme of this chapter. Our, our high priest is praying for us. We have the Holy Spirit praying for us. And he says, if we ask people to pray for us, then we need to stay alert, our eyes open then to see what God does. Things like a meeting with a contentious person went better than we had hoped. God answers that prayer. Or things like um, we listened rather than reacted when we were put in a difficult situation. Or we were able to get what we needed, though not always what we wanted. He says, so when we ask people to pray, and those are just a few examples. When we ask people to pray... Look for God to work. Look for the ways that he answers those prayers. And it, sometimes we have to keep our eyes open. We have to look because it's not always going to be evident because it's not exactly what we thought was going to happen. Maybe not exactly what we asked for, but then when we see it from the biblical perspective and from an eternal perspective, we realize that is God answering that prayer. 
that is what he's doing. He's doing it maybe in a different way than we thought, but from a, a bigger scale, the eternal perspective from a much wiser way than we could have imagined. So he says, keep your eyes open. And then he concludes the chapter this way. He says, yet there are times when no friend knows or prays and hardships are kept private. So sometimes we ask people to pray for us, but there are other times when the only person who knows is God. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're dealing with. And he says, in those moments, we can know then that the spirit and the son know our spirit and speak on our behalf to the father. That's a comforting thought that through all of this, even though we are priests, we still have a great high priest who prays on our behalf and who intercedes with the father. And we have the spirit who groans for us, pleads before the father for us when we don't even know how to pray, what to ask for. So that it's a comforting thought to know that our high priest prays for us. And then he finishes up the the whole book with a, a short conclusion. And one of the things he talks about in this conclusion is just this concept that we've been talking about through the whole study of the priesthood of all believers, that, that all of us, every Christian, every child of God is a priest and relates to God in that way. And he says, if you go back and kind of look through church history, that that has not always been consistently taught or understood, that there is a, a priesthood of all believers And in a very brief summary, he kind of walks us through how this happened in the first centuries of the church after the time of Jesus. So what happens is, and I think some of this was maybe unintentional. Some of it may be intentional on the part of of some who wanted some more influence and power. But really what you have is over the course of centuries, after the time of Christ and the apostles, you have kind of a... um, things start to get tacked on, right? Things start to get tacked on. It's almost kind of think of like a snowball rolling down the hill. You know, it starts with this original, but then the more it goes, the more stuff gets packed onto it. Sometimes that, that's a, a way of understanding how some of the erroneous teachings of the Catholic Church develop. It's like, you, you know, you get to the 1500s and you look at the Reformation and some of the stuff that the Reformers were fighting against, clear clear errors, clear false teachings. And you ask yourself, how did the church of Christ get to that point where they believe some of these things? And well, it, it didn't happen overnight, did it? it? It was a slow process. Like I said, some of it unintentional, some of it intentional by, by people that were not acting in good motives. But really over the course of a thousand years, 1600 years, you had some of these things being added to the church. And, and among those is kind of a, a moving away from this New Testament idea of the priesthood of all believers. Well, you end up first with some church structure. And the Bible gives us some church structure, doesn't it? The Bible says there is a church structure. There are elders. There are deacons. And that's pretty much the two biblical offices that the New Testament describes. So the New Testament does provide some church structure, but you can imagine then how over time as the church would grow, well, we need to add some more layers to the structure, right? So we need to add some more layers to the structure. We need to add some other sub offices and different 
things that so that we can administrate. So you end up with a, a church stru- structure that kind of gets um, ballooned over time. Bu- bureaucracy kind of grows, you know. That, that happened with the early church structure too. And then you kind of had a, a movement toward, over time, more of a, a authority in a centralized group of bishops in the early church. And then eventually, around the five or six hundreds, authority kind of centralized around one of those bishops, the Bishop of Rome, that we know as the Pope. And so this, this took place over the course of four or five hundred years, where this church structure kind of developed and then became kind of centralized. And then one of the things that developed because of this is this division between clergy and laity, where you almost have like two classes of people within the church clergy and laity, those on whom ordained hands were laid on and those whom not. And, and that, that, that gap between clergy and laity just kind of grew over the course of time in the Catholic church. And so eventually then you have a concept of a priesthood of the clergy that is separate from laity where the priest forgives sins. The priest gives absolution. The priest administers the sacraments. And, and you kind of have everything functioning through this idea of a priest. And so we come to God, we come to Christ now through a human representative on earth, a, a human priest. Well, the problem is all of that was just a slow accumulation of tradition that really wasn't what the Bible ever intended in terms of how we relate to God. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross, one of the signs when he died on the cross was the tearing of the veil, wasn't it? It was the tearing of the veil in the the holy place so that, and that symbolized something quite significant, didn't it? That, That in the Old Testament, the way to approach God was through a human priest, was through Aaron or one of his descendants, one of the high priests. But when Jesus died on the cross, he is saying, this is the final sacrifice. There's no more need for any more animal sacrifices. And now through me, you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through any other human priest. And so that that act was quite significant. And so the New Testament then develops that idea of a priesthood of all believers who have access to God by faith. And so the reformers then, and kind of getting back to the scriptures, going back to the source, saw how the church over time had accumulated all these traditions. And they said, no, the Bible says that we're all priests of God. And so that was one of the, the um, themes of the Reformation. You know, a lot of times we think of what, what was the Reformation about? It was about salvation by grace through faith, not by works. It was about the authority of scripture, not the authority of the Pope. And that's true. But one of the defining marks of the Reformation was also the individual priesthood of all believers and that we have access to God by faith, not through a fallible human priest, but through Christ and Christ alone. And so the reformers taught against this uh, separation between the clergy and the laity. And uh, in the chapter, he says, he, that is Martin Luther, 
wrote that those in church office should come from the church community and serve by community consent and election. In other words, Martin Luther was advocating for a return to the New Testament ideal of local church, local officers, uh, local elders and shepherds of the church, that, that those shepherds and elders would would come out of that community, out of that church, and they wouldn't be like transferred in there by some higher authority or bishop and said, now you're you're over in charge of this church. He, he envisioned more of a New Testament idea of the priesthood of believers. Uh, furthermore, those who serve are not unique mediators between God and believers. Rather, they equip the congregation for every member ministry. So one of the bad things about this idea of a distinction between the clergy and the laity is the idea that the common people say, well, the priest and the deacons, they do everything. But the New Testament ideal is, no, we are all servants of God in the church. And part of the responsibility of pastors and deacons is to equip all the saints for the work of ministry. And so that was one of the emphases of the Reformation is to kind of democratize, if you will, the priesthood and give it back to all of the people of God. And he says the resulting landscape then after the Reformation generated everything from Catholics to Quakers. And so we have now kind of a, a big diversity of views of how the priesthood of believers works in the New Testament with every denomination and local church reckoning with how to describe the work of church officers and individual members. And that's one of the things that divides us between denominations is how, how this works, how church offices work, how church government should work. But he says one of the things that came out of all of this through the Reformation is an understanding of this, that the Spirit has been given to all followers of Jesus. And God is pleased to use ordinary, unassuming men and women to advance his kingdom into our hearts and the world. That's really the, the, where this doctrine is intended to go, is that we recognize that there's not like an elite class of saints, like in the Catholic Church. We're all saints. We're all saints, and we're all priests. And we all have access to the throne of God through Christ. And so kind of breaking down this wall of division between clergy and laity that kind of developed over time. So God is using all of us to advance his kingdom in the world. And so scripture is unfamiliar with a passive laity that leaves the work of ministry to ordained professionals. As saints, together we enjoy God's fellowship. We want to know him even better and love him more. And we want those who are further away to come near. So we're all involved. We're all active in the mission of Christ. The distance between heaven and earth has always been shorter than we expected. Kind of looking over the overriding theme of this book now. This distance between heaven and earth has always been shorter than we expected. There are always ladders from which the Lord descended, mountains that we ascended, and temples where the throne room was separated by only a curtain looking at the Old Testament. So there is always these hints of heaven being closer and God being near, ladders and mountains. And then we come to 
there was always this personal God who spoke to his people and listened to them. He came close and with certain stipulations, he invited us to come close to him. So even in the Old Testament, God was drawing us near through some of these types and symbols. And then Christ comes in the New Testament. Then Jesus came to earth and God was here to stay. Jesus was both of heaven and earth, which meant that the plan had always been to unite heaven and earth in him. Jesus is both God and man, isn't he? He's both of heaven and of earth. He's drawing the two together. So that we read in Ephesians 1.10 that in Jesus Christ, God executed his plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, brought together in Christ. And so what are we looking forward to then? What does the future hold? Christ has come. God has been with us in the person of Christ. We have God with us still in the person of the Holy Spirit. What is still to come? It says, now we wait for the fullness of the most holy place to appear. Heaven itself, a perfect square, immense. God's earthly house was a miniature version of heaven. The heavenly house will come down and infuse earth in a way that the earth itself will shine full of God's light and overflowing with his life. What are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to the new Jerusalem, aren't we? a new heavens and a new earth. We're looking forward to God's glorious presence illuminating the world to where Revelation says we don't need a sun or a moon anymore, but we have God's glory that gives it light. He says, what we know in part, we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. We will see him face to face. The spirit will bring us fully into the father and the son, and we will hear Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21 verse 3. And the amazing thing about that is that comes from the last couple of pages of scripture. But you can go back and read some of those same phrases in Exodus. In Hosea. In Deuteronomy. In Isaiah. It's always been God's plan for God to be with us and for us to be with him, for God, for him to be our God and for us to be his people. And so Peter can say that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we are priests of the most high God. And we have been called to be near God as priests, to be near him in his holiness, and then also to represent him before the world. And one day, when the temple of God comes down from heaven, we will be with him forever and ever in his glory and he with us. And that is our great hope as Christians, isn't it? That's what we look forward to. That's what we long for. Sometimes when we think about heaven, we think about streets of gold or gates of pearl, but really the beauty of heaven is that God will be there. We'll be with God, our creator, in his perfection and glory forever and ever. And that's something that we cannot even comprehend. As Paul says in Romans 8, it is impossible for us to compare the sufferings that we're going through now with the glories that will be revealed hereafter. We don't even know how to think about it, how to compare it. 
It's beyond our comprehension. But one day we will be with God and he will be with us. What a great hope that is. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to go through this study, through uh, created to draw near. Thank you for the way that it has drawn us into scripture uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation and has kind of opened up for us uh, a running theme that goes through all the scriptures. And that is your desire to be near your people and to, to draw us into your presence. Father, thank you that now in Christ, through the gospel, we have been blessed with this high privilege of being called priests of the Most High God. So like Melchizedek of old, or like Aaron of old, uh, Lord, we are priests. We are we're drawn near to you through Christ and your spirit. And now you are using us to bless uh, the world and to share the good news of Christ and your love with the world. Father, thank you for this theme that we've been able to look at. And uh, Father, I pray that it has not only informed us, that we've learned from it, but Father, that it has changed the way that uh, we relate to you, the way that we think about being in your presence, and also the, the way that we think about our mission in the world. Father, I pray that this, uh, some of these truths that we've looked at will continue to abide in our hearts and we would reflect on them often. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.